Welcome to the Queen of the Sciences podcast, conversations between a theologian and her dad. I'm your host, Sarah Henlicky wilson And I am Paul R. Henlicky. Today on the show, we are closing out Season 5 of Queen of the Sciences with a grand slam theological topic, the image of God, or as we like to say it in Latin, because theologians are like that, imago dei. Dad, this is something you have been advocating for for quite a while now. Why did you want to take up this particular topic? Well, uh, it's kind of uh, follows naturally from our last time, right? When we talked about neuroscience and maybe even neurotheology. And there's a lot that's at stake in this classic uh, locus of theology, image of God, because it stands for the human and the value of the human. But we noted in passing last time the thin gruel of the gospel of human uniqueness. Uh, Ingolf Dalfurth, that theologian whom we both think very highly of, pointed out in his book Creatures of Possibility how contemporary theologians, seeking well to safeguard our threatened humanity, actually compound the problem of dehumanization by laying, and here I'm quoting, great stress on human rational activity as that which distinguishes the human being from all other living beings as the so-called finite creator, as a moral person, as a being endowed with conscience, as the free and rational designer of his own life. In other words, reason is what makes human beings human, end quote. Well, we think that this is a mistake. That's why we want to talk about this today. Hmm. Certainly inadequate. I would not want to downplay human reason, especially at a time when people are assaulting reason for bad reasons, but it is, is certainly insufficient on its own. Right, and we're going to put reason in its place, which is what theologians should do in any way. <laughs> right. But needless, needless to say, Ellen... Uh, Ellen. Whoa, whoa! <laughs> <laughs> Listeners, that's my mom's name. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, mansplaining. There I go again. <laughs> or a daughter made in the image of her mother. Okay, Paul. <laughs> Let's start <laughs> over again. Oh, needless, to, needless to say, this appeal to the image of God, qua rationality, as a supposed anthropological universal, allows theologians to bypass the messy for contingent Christological and pneumatological agencies of God and go directly to a supposedly universal innate human trait demanding right of recognition and indeed modern progress scores itself by progressive inclusion of all rational animals regardless of the so-called accidents of history and even of biology on their way to a universal city of man. Well, we know where that heads. That heads towards the Tower of Babel, and then things go badly wrong. Well, let's start out with just the source of this very uh, provocative and fruitful language, because, you know, there's there's a reason why the image of God term has been made to bear so much weight. It does, it, it is fruitful. And, um, but let, let's start with where it actually comes from. So uh, the, the, 
principal uses of the term are in the book of Genesis. I'm going to read them off quickly now. The most famous one is from chapter 1, verses 26 and 27. Uh, this is the Revised Standard Version, which I happen to have at hand. Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the air, and over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps upon the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So that's, that's the big one, the famous one, and that also does a lot of the work where um, the uh, uh, equality before God of men and women is concerned. Then at the beginning of chapter 5, uh, of Genesis we have, this is the book of the generations of Adam. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. Male and female, he created them, and he blessed them and named them man when they were created. And then it continues in verse 3. When Adam had lived 130 years, he became the father of a son in his own likeness after his image and named him Seth. So that's a very interesting extension of this from God to Adam and then Adam to Seth, which you may remember is the son who was born after Cain murdered Abel and is, um, is meant, the name even means like a replacement or a substitution for lost Abel. And then the last instance is in chapter 9 of Genesis, verse 6. Um, this is um, an address of God to Noah and his sons. Uh, God says, Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed, for God made man in his own image. Um, and that, of course, is, um, carries much uh, jurisprudence weight as well. Um, and so the, these terms, the Hebrew image and likeness, you probably noticed that there are two distinct terms. There's been a great deal of theological speculation on why there are two terms, if this is just Hebrew parallelism or if it has a, a deeper distinction. I think we'll, we'll get to that eventually. Um, but I think what I just want to uh, lift up here, and this is very much led by a wonderful essay by Brent Strawn. Um, I think we've mentioned him before. He wrote a fantastic yes. book called The Old Testament is Dying, uh, which right. I would consider essential reading for every preacher. But this is from an essay of his called From Imago to Imagines, The Images of God in Genesis. It's in his um, book of collected essays called The Incomparable God. And um, one of the chief points he wants to make is that it is a um, bi-directional or it's a mutual referent. So it's not only going from God to human, but also human to God. And the many, uh, by looking at the many activities of both God and human across the book of Genesis, you get um, basically a hermeneutical unpacking of what this brief phrase means. So he, he tends more towards an interpretation of, of look at the drama of Genesis, look at the actual unfolding history of God and human to understand what is meant by image of God, rather than making a kind of abstract or metaphysical statement out of it. Right. And that would include then the uh, classical uh, Christian platonic view that the essence of human uniqueness is our rationality. That would be an abstraction from the narrative that Strawn is pointing to, right? 
Yeah, yeah. And in fact, I'll just one one last thing from Straw. And I think he makes the beautiful point that the culmination of Genesis is the Joseph story. And that at the far end of that story, two important things happen. One, Joseph forgives his brothers. He doesn't murder them. So in that moment, Joseph becomes the anti-Cain. So we see this, the, the culmination of the question about murder really happens in Joseph's refusal to murder the brothers who probably deserve it for all they've done. And he forgives them instead. And then secondly, that God as an agent recedes somewhat in the Joseph story, except for at the crucial moment. And for Luther, this was the crucial moment of the Joseph story too, is in prison, the text says, the Lord was with Joseph. For Luther, that is the gospel of Genesis. And that is what gives Joseph the ability to correctly interpret his own life at the very end by saying, you may have intended it for evil, but God intended it for good. So this um, patient suffering, but with the Lord's presence that Joseph has gone through, gives him the authority to interpret God's ways. Wow, that's that's fabulous, Sarah. That's thank you. That's a great, great, um, a great entree into our topic. Um, you know, let's just give some credit to the classical Christian Platonic doctrine of um, the image of God as rationality, as you did earlier. We don't want to totally discredit reason. The problem is that it's when you elevate it as the quality of human uniqueness that grounds a special status for human beings. When you do something like that, um, you you create a criterion that actually excludes um, quite a significant number of human beings, like um, a, a fetal life in the in the womb the life of, of, of minors, of children who do not yet have adult rationality, the life of declining people in their senior years or in poor health, and so forth. If you really use this view of rationality as um, grounding an inherent capacity and right to self-determination, what you really have here when you scratch the surface is the sovereign self of Western modernity. And we've talked about this a number of times. This doctrine of the sovereign self can do quite well without theology. Indeed, in order to achieve full sovereignty, it must finally do away with God. It desires to be God without God. But I I, I would just want to add quickly, it causes trouble in the church too. There have been many... mm, long defenses of refusing to baptize intellectually disabled people who cannot make a confession of faith. If, you know, if, if it's a, a church that only baptizes upon confession of faith, I, I have read chilling stories of well-meaning churches saying, well, this would compromise our understanding of discipleship if we baptized your, your intellectually disabled teenager. I'm just like, nope, no. nope, <laughs> wrong. There's something very wrong with that, isn't there? Wow. Yeah, yeah. So it's not just the secularists on the outside, but um, well, the secularists within. on the inside. Yes, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> yes. Uh, how much accommodation there's been to this sovereign self of modernity. Yeah. But you know, here's the the way in which we can deflate a little bit the notion of rationality as marking human uniqueness, because the Achilles' heel of this whole uh, rationalization of the doctrine of the image of God uh, is, the, as you mentioned, the Tower of Babel. It's the fact that all we so-called rational animals do not all think alike, talk alike, or feel alike. 
and platitudes about diversity do not trump this actual particularism of our divided humanity. And as a result, when push comes to shove in the contest for power that beset the modern quest for some universal humanity, and the chief three, big three here are Marxism, liberalism, and fascism, in those power contests, we have to denounce, cancel, censor, incorrigible others as deplorables who need to be sent somewhere for re-education. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> so in today's postmodernity, we are we are now in a clash of sovereignties, uh, wills to power at the mercy of the bottomless pit of identity politics, which when exposed, reveal themselves as power politics. Yeah, I call this if onlyism uh, as a, a variety of utopianism. But if only everybody would just, if only we would stop arguing, if only we would stop ruining the environment, you know, whatever it is, if only. And behind that apparently um, aspirational view of humanity is is a program to exterminate. Because, you know, well, what stands in the way of our if only is these people who don't get with the program. Yeah, if only we all thought alike. If only we were all reasonable. These are the platitudes that, in fact, are, I've criticized this, as you know, Sarah, many times as Western naivete. It's the belief that, well, I don't have to go into that. It's <laughs> it's a very naive belief. There's well, let's a ration. At the other end of not granting the genuine diversity of humanity is if you don't have heaven, all you have is utopia. And as we all know, utopia means nowhere. So aspiring after utopia by getting rid of the people who stand in the way leads everybody nowhere. Yeah, or or to the some kind of some version of the gulag or the death camps. Yeah, yeah. maybe that's the ultimate nowhere. Okay, let's let's carry on. <laughs> let's carry on. So a proper doctrine of the image of God would say that what matters is not who you are, but whose you are. Thus, in turn, for Christians as harbingers of a new humanity in the midst of divided and conflicted humanity, it's not who you are, but who you say Jesus Christ is. It would, in this light, a proper doctrine of the image of God demand an anti-Cartesian renaturalization of the human body with brain as what human beings actually have in common. We have in common the body. So the doctrine of the image of God would then indicate a passive disposition, as the formula of Concord put it in the Flotsian controversy, to respond to divine calling which would immediately in turn mandate conscientious responsibility to God for the creation in one's little sphere. That's the universal substance of the calling to be fruitful, multiply, and have dominion. Okay, can I raise a first objection to, to make sure. this more interesting? I'll, I'll argue back. So... The thing is, so you, you ca characterize this theologically as whose you are, who you say Jesus Christ is, the mandate to respond. And 
In my understanding, one of the reasons you get a secularized version of the image of God in the form of human rights, which I think we'll talk about down the line, is precisely because the very people who were entrusted with this precious theological insight into the image of God waged bloody war against each other in Europe for centuries. And finally, in the exhaustion, especially of the Thirty Years' War and the uh, emergent nation states that were supposed to, you know, force some sort of stability between religious factions. Um, Religion was no longer seen, theology, Christian faith was no longer seen as a reliable place to get from this. So I I would imagine um, maybe a a fellow Westerner who is disturbed by the trajectory of our civilization and would like to recapture some of the positive goods of an image of God, hears this and immediately thinks, but you are requiring us all to be Christians and have explicit Christian faith. How can this possibly good for us when that has given rise to so much war, even between Christians who believe it? Yeah, very good. Well, um, I was just arguing, though, or suggesting this is what we're going to develop here in this podcast, is that a proper doctrine of the image of God would orient itself to the body, including the marvelous brain and its marvelous capacities and so forth. Uh, And it would not essentialize some notion of rationality uh, in abstraction from that common bodiliness of all human beings. So that is, that is a universal, that, that is a way of saying that this proper doctrine of the image of God tr- much transcends um, uh, explicit Christian faith in Jesus Christ or something like that, as it should. Okay, so you're saying then that the proper Christian posture here then is to simply grant and acknowledge, not grant, acknowledge, recognize in every bodily human being the image of God, which therefore we know as a matter of, of faith and commandments not to interfere with, connecting, you know, back to the, the commandment against killing that we heard from, from Genesis 9. Absolutely. It doesn't say uh, stuff out their thinking. It, it's, it doesn't forbid criticizing their thinking. It forbids taking their bodily life. Okay, so then that shifts the arena of action to defining which bodies actually count as human, and that becomes, of course, its own enormous problem. So, you know, the the <laughs> the encounters with um, Africans and indigenous peoples over the past several hundred years, and this, well, are they really human, or are they as human as we are? The ongoing dispute about, as you mentioned, whether a fetus actually counts as human. If somebody, let's say, who was born with only half a brain, which occasionally happens, if they're fully human, so. So you're saying the arena now moves to the dispute over the embodied human rather than any particular quality of that human. That's right. That's right. And um, I think, you know, scientifically, which we're going to turn to the science in a minute, um, scientifically, a member of a, of a organic species is one uh, where male and female can mate and produce uh, fertile offspring. And so that's that's setting the bar really, really low. <laughs> you know, <laughs> you know, it's it doesn't take much to qualify as a living human body. And that's the point. That's why it can actually function as a universal. And you see, when you get to the wars of religion, how did that happen that people went to war over conflicting doctrine, a Christian doctrine? Doesn't that have to do 
with this legacy from Christian Platonism of, of elevating rationality as the unique and defining characteristic of, of the truly human and therefore the truly Christian. And if you don't agree with us on every jot and tittle of doctrine, you're somehow demonically deceived or even worse. Right, right. Can't, hard to imagine what would be worse than that. So I think this this actually raises then something we're going to continue to trace out here, that there is something in the image of God that suggests both an absolute given. Uh, you talked about the passive disposition. It's simply how you are made and created. You have it inalienably. And at the same time, uh, there is a, a calling forth or a mandate. And so I think uh, in a sort of classical Lutheran distinction between the indicative and the imperative, we have no business talking about the imperative until we are absolutely grounded in the indicative. So we should talk about the mandate and the calling of the human, but only after we have zero doubts in our minds about the indicative fact of simply being in the image of God by participating bodily in the whole human race, right? Right. That's exactly right. Yeah, that's what I think. Yep. So let's now shift gears a little bit towards science, modern neuroscience and so forth. We saw in the last podcast on neuroscience that it is reductionist and materialist. And that is, it in effect performs an exorcism on the Cartesian ghost in the machine. That's a sarcastic expression that I picked up years ago from Richard Rorty. In the process, it makes visible what a human organism is in all of its astonishing complexity and yet amazing coherence as a human mind embodied as a brain forming a biographical person in its actual history with nature, humanity, and God the Creator. Uh, so the tendency of science today is to deflate inflated claims for the human uniqueness, as if located in some immaterial quality, like a so-called rational soul, that in principle can float free of the body. Now, Sarah, I'd like you to uh, help me out here with a quotation from a former professor of yours, J. Wenzel Van Husting, and what he says about the comment I just made. Yeah, that's right. I took several um, philosophy classes with him at Princeton Seminary, and he taught one that the one that had the biggest impact on me was called evolutionary epistemology. And it was, well, what it sounds like, it's uh, assessing how we know what we know through the lens of what was useful in our evolutionary survival. I found it to be an extremely helpful lens for for thinking about what is what is reliable and knowledge and what's unreliable and uh, the space in between. But anyway, he also did a lot of work on um, basically how to think about uh, Homo sapiens sapiens. I believe we are technically have two sapiens, um, the version that we are now, and how we emerged out of other hominid species and pretty much displaced all the others. Though, though a, a, a few people, some some number of people out there have a, a little bit of Neanderthal DNA. Um, but basically, Homo sapiens are the only hominids left. So how do we relate to the ones who came before? But so uh, so Van Heistian is looking back, at, looking at um, scientific studies of the emergence of hominids and their distinctiveness in this uh, kind of um, scientific and anthropological perspective. So he says. 
um, he proposes, theologians are now challenged to take seriously the fact that the very human ability to respond religiously to ultimate questions through various forms of worship and prayer is deeply embedded in our species' capacity for symbolic, imaginative behavior and in the embodied mind that makes such behavior possible. Yeah, and so that's a way of scientifically, reductionistly, and materially grounding religion, religious behavior in, um, in, in the human embodied, embodied mind in the human brain. And we're going to take a look in a little bit at some of his studies in paleoanthropology in which he argues this case out. But I think I want to also pull in our other friend, Ian McGilchrist here, um, who also has a very excellent uh, statement about uh, the fear of scientific reductionism, especially when it comes to human uniqueness. I'm quoting him, Even if it were possible for mind to be reduced, as we say, to matter, this would necessarily and equally compel us to sophisticate our idea of what matter is and is capable of becoming namely something as extraordinary as mind. So, end quote, the apparently anti-Cartesian philosophical materials thinks that mind and body are simply the same thing. To this, McGilchrist replies, I'm quoting, mind has the characteristics of a process more than of a thing. It is becoming a way of being more than an entity. Every individual mind is a process of interaction with whatever it is that exists apart from ourselves according to its own individual history, end quote. Now, Sarah, let me just comment or make a connection here theologically. The way McGilchrist talks about mind as a process reminds me of the Trinitarian distinction between hypostasis and usia. Hypostasis is the way of being, while, while usia is abstractly being as such. So a person is a particular way of being in the course of a uniquely individual history. And that is also, he's calling mind and person and hypostasis. These are all terms that have an associative meaning, I think, connecting to McGilchrist's comment. And as a theologian, we Christians want to exhort um, ourselves to Philippians 2 to have this mind in you that was in Christ Jesus. And we can connect that with other passages which talk about Jesus Christ as the new Adam, the true image of God. Hmm. Which immediately suggests then that whatever it is to have the mind of Jesus Christ is not to uh, force yourself or pretend that you are a first century Palestinian Jewish male rabbi who had never met electricity or something like that. That's simply not possible. This takes us much more into the realm of uh, what I like to talk about is hagiography, which is how, according to our own vocations, we take up the mind of Christ. So there is the the um, appropriation and yet at the same time absolute distinction because we are not the same. We are not literally the body of Jesus, and we do not have the same history of Je as Jesus and not the same experiences of Jesus. And yet somehow we think having his mind is an option open to us. So uh, immediately it forces us to reckon with this um, 
this I don't know what you call it exactly. Well, I maybe just embodied historical reality of what it means to be a human at all is not at odds with somehow being in communication with or receiving from the divine. Oh, no, quite the contrary. I think that's right, Sarah. Yeah. I just want to make one more comment about image of God in Genesis. Uh, we, we can point out that it probably is to be ascribed to the priestly writer uh, uh, in Genesis and it, evident, it evinces a democratizing tendency. Uh, the idea here is that every living human couple signifies the creator's dominion in the creation, not by denoting an inherent special quality like rationality, but as a relationship initiated and sustained by divine calling, the human vocation to care for this earth as the creator cares for the world, and uh, I think that is to interpret the terminology of image of God in light of the divine mandate, be fruitful and multiply, and so forth. And then as we pointed out, such divine calling uh, bestows the dignity of the image of God without respect to our actual human response to the call. That's why it provides a sanction against taking human life. For every human life in the body remains related to the Creator, who does not cease to call and promises to avenge murder in the conflicted earthly city, which as a whole has de defected from the divine calling, storming heaven in some secular tower of Babel. So I think by now we have multiple <laughs> implications of this image of God. So let me just spell out a few of them and then we can figure out what we want to keep or develop or blend. So image of God somehow means the signifier of human uniqueness as compared to other creatures, not to make us not creatures or not animals, but what is unique and distinctive about us as compared to the rest of creation. And then that has the further implication, another meaning of image of God, is that it is the indicator of full worth and moral consequence, hence the prohibition on murder. And then we have um, something more like the mandate or calling, which is the image of God is a capacity to know and reflect God. So there is something about us that is a, a mirror to, to God's own nature. But then there also is suggested that there is something that by looking at humanity, we can know something about God, and that is best exemplified in the actions of, of care and blessing and forgiving, like we mentioned with Joseph. But also, the, probably the most important implication of this is that um, the, the Genesis stories talk about man and woman together imaging God. So there's some, some suggestion that you cannot have an accurate image of God without somehow looking at the, the male-female partnership, or if you only have an image of God classically that's male-oriented and leaving out the female um, aspect to or capacity to, to say something about God, you have an incomplete picture. So that's a lot coming out of the, this, this phrase and its, its brief appearances, but I think that gives us an orientation of where we want to go to develop the idea for today. That's great, Sarah. Yeah. And I would just like to, you know, we, we tend to be critical of the uh, so-called faculty psychology of Christian Platonism, the hierarchy of reason, will, and passion, reason on top, willpower in the middle, and our unruly passions down below, right? And, and how that's been Christianized and so forth. 
Um, and I think that the hierarchy needs to be criticized because the bodily truth is something that St. Augustine was closer to, that, that we are creatures of desire. We, and Luther picks this up in the Catechism, that none of us have life of ourselves. We have to seek life from outside of ourselves. So that this deep down desire motivates us in everything that we do. Consequently, the human question is not whether you love, but what you love. No, no, with the Bible, what you love with all your heart and all your mind and all your soul, right? So um, I think in that light, we can say there's a different insight in Eastern Orthodox theology that I find very helpful. They, it might not be exegetically uh, 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 strong, the distinction between image and likeness, but they uh, take it, uh, take the distinction to be important. And in my appropriation, I want to say the image signifies the divine calling and likeness indicates the human task in response. So we are created in the image of God for the purpose of likeness to God. And according to the Eastern Orthodox, we can fill up the image with, the, with godliness or ungodliness, likeness or unlikeness. As you pointed out, the likeness would be modeled in Joseph's behavior at the end of Genesis. So it's another, it's basically the imper, the indicative imperative in, right. you know, in a, a different format. Yeah, that's right. And again, Van Husteen says to be created in God's image means that we should all act like God and so attain holiness through our compassionate care for the other and for the world, end quote. Now. Where does this leave us? With utopia, obviously. <laughs> I don't think so. It leaves us with a big problem. We have to say with the apostle, all have fallen short of the glory of God. As we today, I'm thinking of Ukraine and Hamas and Israel and all sorts of other hotspots around the world and all sorts of other human problems. As we behold our conflicted humanity perhaps on the brink of self-destruction. Uh, but we also have to proclaim into this mess Jesus Christ as the new Adam, the true human being whose mind can become our mind by the gift of the Holy Spirit who incorporates us into the body of Christ. Interestingly, to follow up on that, I've been um, teaching uh, both two sections of catechism and um, a wonderful little book on the Nicene Creed by Philip Carey. I would strongly recommend it to pastors looking for a, a, a book to um, to do with their congregations. I've had several people say, this answered all my questions about God. Now I see how the Son and the Father are both God. This is great. <laughs> but what I've found in, in talking about the first article in the Nicene Creed as well as in catechism, like for a lot of my people, People, all the action is actually in the first article, and they really wrestle with, wait, you're saying God created everything good, including humans, and then, but all this stuff went wrong. <laughs> and um, it, it's, in, in a sense, almost, it reminds me of when we were talking back on uh, Martin Luther King, is is how I, I noticed in his preaching, proclaiming given 
um, and granted belovedness to his fellow black Americans, that was where the theological action was. The need for a savior and a spirit was almost self-evident in the plight that we're in. But the idea that you were already good to begin with, that you had been simply given something by God, was startling. It really came as good news. And I'm very surprised to see that in my congregation under very different circumstances. But I think what we're you're touching on here is when we look at all the things that humans have done and are continuing to do wrong, to be able to speak to that, the givenness of the image of God and the the one person who responds fully and rightly in becoming that likeness of God in his life, i.e. Jesus, um, there, there is a... Um, there is power there. There, There is a, a twist and um, a tang and um, a point of connection with good news that people really need to hear now. Yeah, amen to that. And uh, maybe for next year we can do a podcast on the new Scandinavian creation theology, which echoes some of those sentiments. Uh, but let's finish up this year before we talk about next year. <laughs> okay. Okay. So here, here's kind of the, the issue as we've gotten thus far. For science today, we are radically continuous with the animal world and therefore debunking inflated claims for human uniqueness based on rationality. But for good theology, our dignity and hope for universal co-humanity is called into question by our bestial fallenness. So uh, how do we square this circle? This is a really uh, a th- thick knot of problems. And your former professor, Van Hustine, devoted his career to this question. And he culminated his career's, his life's work in his Gifford lectures, a book called uh, Alone in the World? Question mark, Human Uniqueness in science and theology. And he looks for traces of divine calling in paleoanthropological research. So let's spend a little time talking about what he achieved. Great, yeah. Okay, he argues that since the very beginning of the emergence of Homo sapiens, the characteristics that made humans uniquely different from even their closest sister species characteristics like consciousness, language, symbolic minds, and symbolic behavior, always included religious awareness and religious behavior, end quote. He actually explicitly concurs with one of my favorite theologians, Robert Jensen's argument that human beings are, quote, the praying animal, and that Adam and Eve were the first hominid group that, in whatever form of religion or language, by ritual action, bonded before God. And then Wenzel draws this conclusion. On this view, Christian theology is liberated from the obligation to stipulate morphological characteristics that would absolutely distinguish prehumans from humans in the process of evolutionary succession. End quote. I, I really like this. Um, and also, I, I find it, I have to admit, a bit amusing because I am deeply puzzled by avowed secular humanists who think that um, the, the true 
the true transcendent goal for humanity is to shed religion altogether, when in fact religion has been the defining feature of our species all along. And if you really had such deep belief in humanity um, as a non-religious entity, then I would think this would actually destroy your secular humanist optimism because you would see that humans are continually returning to religion. So I, I don't understand how this doesn't just cut the ground out underneath that argument. But anyway, it stands. The, the thing is, there has never been a human being who has been without the religious impulse. It is defining of what we have always been. Right. And we want to say theologically then that that's because human uniqueness and hence religiosity as an aspect of that consists in divine calling. The ubiquitous idolatries of human history testify to confused and inarticulate responses to divine calling. Now, let me be specific, because our listeners are probably wondering, well, where do we hear this divine calling? <laughs> Every human hears divine calling through the masks of nature, according to Romans chapter 1, and through the mask of morality, Romans chapter 2. Through nature and morality, nature inspiring awe and wonder, morality laying burdens upon human conscience, um, and expectations of human behavior. Through each of these masks, I'm using the word masks deliberately because it's Luther's term for a way in which God hides himself in order to call human beings to responsibility before him. Yeah, I think we can also just grant that the science cannot conclude that this is divine calling. It can observe that humans have always responded to something in this religious fashion and that it is deeply connected to the experience of nature and moral obligation. It's as theologians, we can say this is a response to divine calling, but we don't need science to come to that conclusion for us. Absolutely. And it's in fact theologically important to call these, to term nature and morality masks in order to speak about the hiddenness of God the Creator. And we could go off on that theme about how God the Creator hides himself in order to let uh, his creatures um, um, mature to adulthood or something like that. But let's not go off on that track. Okay. Uh, on this, uh, on this basis, though, Van Husteen devotes a great deal of attention to paleoanthropology's investigation of that famous cave art discovered a kilo kilometer deep within the earth in southern France from the upper Paleolithic age, that's 40 to 50,000 years ago. There, there are imprints of human hands on the, on the face of the walls of the cave, and depictions of wild game hunted by these early humans. They're interpreted by Van Histeen as cultic representations, invoking the spirits who exist in the netherworld beyond the wall of the cave. And he provides, of course, a great deal of evidence for this, but I'm summarizing very rapidly. Now, other older cave art has been found since Van Histeen's time, especially in Africa. And little depends on the specific chronology of these discoveries, since the claim uh, is that the early hominids bound themselves by ritual action before the divine, whenever that was, invoking the divine in response to intimations of divine calling. Quoting the neuroscientist Deacon, 
on the significance of the cave art. Uh, Van Hustine writes, the images give us the very first direct expression of the symbolizing human mind. They are the first irrefutable expressions of a symbolic process that is capable of conveying a rich cultural heritage of images and probably stories from generation to generation. And they are the first concrete evidence of the storage of such symbolic information outside of the human brain. End quote. Now, I say that's very interesting. Mm. This mm-hmm. cave art is the first writings. That is to say, literally, the first scripture. Evidences of what pre-modern theology called the book of nature. And, of course, this is a book which tells us as much about the human as a praying animal, as about the non-human world suffused with divine calling. Mm. You know, we didn't talk about it so much in the last episode with um, McGilchrist, but he spends quite a lot of time developing the idea that, in a sense, human culture is is the brain um, exploring itself and getting to know itself and trying to depict itself outside of its casing in the skull. Um, I, I'm, I'm putting it very crudely. He develops it, it really beautifully. But I think this really connects to what Van Heistein is observing here, is this idea of the profound uh, human experience within the mind that wants to reach outside of itself and in a way, you know, look at itself and, and examine itself in, in dialogue with, with nature, with God, with other people. And it also reminds me, I, I haven't read this book of Van Heistian's, but um, I visited Australia this year and went to what is uh, formerly known as Ayers Rock, now known as Uluru, which is one of the aboriginal names for it. It's this really phenomenal rock formation in the middle of a very flat desert, and it has all sorts of interesting um, cracks and holes and features along it. And I learned that um, this was the original scripture for the aboriginal people. Um, And they received what just the formation of the rock itself as this, you know, as you call it, this mask of the divine through nature. But instead of, um, well, there, there actually are illustrations that have been renewed many generations on the rock itself. But more importantly, it was um, oral stories that were told and retold and entrusted very carefully over, they think, maybe as long as 60,000 years that they, they've been on the Australian continent. Um, and so it, it's exactly this, this kind of thing, this powerful encounter with the givenness of nature calls forth a response that is then um, uh, it is put outside of the brain and passed on through the generations and continually received, interpreted, and formative of newer generations. Really, really um, thrilling and um, uh, mind-bending for me to experience that in a, in a yeah, that, way. That, that's just that's fantastic that um, you can testify to a direct your direct experience of, of I don't know the Aboriginal name Ayers Rock. What is Uluru. it? Uluru. Uluru. Right. That's really cool, you know. And it should also kind of humanize our Christian understanding of idolatry. I'd, idolatry, you know, we kind of demonize idolatry, um, but in in the way we're talking about it, it is the human self-objectification in response to um, intimations of transcendence that that in nature and in morality, as we're talking about. And I should say about McGilchrist, Sarah, but just in pa- passing, what you mentioned about human culture being this exploration of humanity of itself in 
dialogue with the world that is a very Hegelian theme, and McGilchrist acknowledges his dependence on Hegel in this regard. But let, let us pass on. Okay, let me, and let me just say quickly, I think, uh, as outrageous as this sounds, there's idolatry and then there's idolatry. <laughs> you know, there's, there's an idol when you are, are trying to access something that you can only see through a mask. And then there's an idol when you know the real thing and you prefer what you can control. And I, I think uh, possibly to uh -huh. use the same term for both realities uh, do, does an injustice to the former. I like that very much. I agree with the thought, okay? Okay, there's also, going back to Van Histine, an emphasis on ritual. And this is not accidental because it underscores the embodied nature of the human sense of the divine. The emphasis helpfully moves theological understanding of the Genesis language of image of God away from abstraction to some quality like reason. From the abstraction from the body, uh, and focuses instead on the divine mandate issued to humanity. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth, subdue it, and have dominion over it. Which is why rituals, of course, always mark these transition points in human behavior. Birth, uh, maturation, marriage, uh, childbearing, and finally death. The interpretation of image as source and mandate for human life, as calling, as the human vocation, Van Husteen writes, respects the sexual differentiation between men and women, even as they exercise responsible care and multiply and spread over the earth. It refers to the male-female partnership, as you mentioned earlier, Though in the fallen world, the dignity of the calling is ambiguously refracted upon every individual human body, thus on singles and non-married as well as on married people. I almost wonder if it would be more helpful to, to think not so much that, um, well, to, to think that every person comes from a male-female pairing. So that... that uh, that even kind of like take some of the burden off yourself, <laughs> but to, to, to put that, that, that male female imaging is you got your own bodily human life from a man and a woman. Yes. And we have all been children. And I think that if one of the imports of our discussion of image of God as being localized in a human body is this fact of the extraordinarily long infancy and childhood of human beings compared to all other animal species and the absolute mandate to care and nurture and bring up the young until they attain uh, adulthood uh, is an extremely long process in the human species. And so in this respect, Van Husteen emphasizes that the emphasis on the body also confronts us with the realities of vulnerability, affliction, and deprivation, and that this vulnerability is deeply embedded in our bodily existence. For this reason, the image of God is not found in some narrow intellectual or spiritual capacity, but in the whole human being, body and soul. In fact, the image of God is not found in humans. It is the human. And that emphasis on vulnerability, sir, of course, immediately connects with the extended infancy and childhood of human beings. 
Yeah, you know, a, a huge critique from feminist quarters against the history of, of you know, Western philosophy about the nature of, of the human being is that it's always been very male-centered and has not uh, even acknowledged female experience or existence. And uh, fair enough. But what's always bugged me more is that it's always been adult experience. Like, you would never know in a great deal of Western philosophy that anybody ever started out as a kid, a baby, and had to grow up and and go through all the, the stages before you could even begin to be an, an autonomous adult. I mean, women also can be autonomous adults, but babies can never be autonomous. And everybody started out in that condition. So I, for, for me, I... Um, I think maybe my interest in, in more is is reconceiving our whole idea of anthropology by starting as children rather than even the the I mean the male female distinction of course is essential as well but what both men and women start out as is babies children who are cared for by other people. That's right and I think that would be a, a really excellent fresh start on the whole doctrine here. Let's uh we've got to start wrapping this up right. Let's go back to McGilchrist for a little bit. Um, um, we remember from our last episode that McGilchrist's main contribution is to um, talk about the difference between the right and left hemispheres of, of the brain. And one of the ways that he maps this, I think, connects very well to this idea that through morality and nat- experience of nature, uh, we dimly perceive the divine calling. Um, and he talks about this in terms of a, a discussion of what belief or religious belief might be. And he rejects Plato's idea that faith is mere opinion, that is, thinking that such and such might be the case. Belief, he says, is not a weaker form of thinking laced with doubt. That would be a totally left hemisphere um, construction of belief. By contrast, he writes, the right hemisphere of the brain does not know anything in the sense of certain knowledge. For it, belief is a matter of care. This is interesting. Belief is a matter of care because it describes a relationship where there is a calling and an answering the root concept of responsibility. It means that I stand in a certain sort of relation of care towards you that entails me in certain kinds of ways of behaving towards you and entails on you the responsibility of certain ways of acting and being as well. It is acting as if certain things were true about you that in the nature of things cannot be certain. It has the characteristic of right hemisphere qualities of being a responsible relationship in which each party is altered by the other and by the relationship between the two, whereas the relationship of the believer to the believed in the left hemisphere is a sense of inert, unidirectional, and centers on control rather than care. End quote. How does that sound, Sarah? Well, you know, it strikes me so much uh, talking about belief as a form of attention, precisely because in the wake of what has been done to our actual brains by the attention economy in the Internet and most uh, uh, notoriously smartphones and social media, um, is that it has... uh, 
it's it's basically co-opted <laughs> our believing brains by rerouting their attention with a, a level of power that is very hard to resist or control once you're in it. But then if you if you if you do understand belief this way as a form of attention, then you realize how deeply the matter is at stake of where we uh, uh, where, where we attend and what the implications for attention are. And I even think that this this might be leaping too far, but my understanding of what's known now about particle physics is that particles, uh, subatomic particles, are altered by the presence of an attentive observer. And right. I don't think physicists can really figure this out. Why should this be the case? If if the if matter is reductionistic and inert and just things bouncing off each other, the presence of an observer shouldn't do anything. But this seems to be one of those little signals within the nature of matter that matter is not what you thought matter was. <laughs> and if if mind and body are the same thing, then then body and matter and physicality are a lot more interesting than anybody ever imagined. Yeah, well, the, Sarah, the, the simple observation to make is that observation of these subatomic particles is also a natural event. Human beings are natural. And when we interact with nature, it's a natural interaction. And the interaction should not surprise us because we are not something other than nature intervening into a natural process. We are nature itself interacting with itself, if you have to put, if I can put it that way. And so look at it. what I want to just cut to the chase here and say the classical uh, Reformation idea of natural, so-called natural theology in Latin is sensus divinitatis, a kind of vague sense of divinity. And I think you can directly connect this with McGilchrist's description of the right brain's openness to the world uh, in, in wonder and conscience. It's not left-brain natural theology, which would be an attempt to master or control, but rather a passive disposition to receive, um, to be open to the articulated knowledge of God given in Jesus Christ. And I think that's how a lot of people who have long not been religious come around to it. I, I think we can say it's it's their right brain is simply perceiving there's more going on here and I can't make it add up by taking proposition A plus proposition B plus proposition C and that equals the existence of God. That's the left brain trying to assemble out of denuded, atomized inert things. But the, the right hemisphere says, well, no, that's just, that isn't enough. There's more going on here. Yeah, I think that's, that, that's right. Now, that's not to totally discredit left brain thinking. No, no, no. I, I don't think you, you get there usually from the left brain. I, I no, think you the don't. left, again, it's, it's, it's the emissary working for the master instead of the other way around. Right. Okay. Let's, let's draw some conclusions. Okay. Here's the you mentioned this earlier, but I want to bring it out now. The post-war Universal Declaration of Human Rights was probably the high water mark of the biblical tradition of humanity as made in the image of God, even if today's secular champions of it no longer remember the rock from which <laughs> they were hewn, the quarry from which they were dug. But such forgetfulness of God the Creator as the source of human dignity, even in our ambiguous fallenness, is not innocent or without consequences. 
so the Russian Federation can demand a place on the U United Nations Human Rights Council, and left-wing academics can defend Hamas's ISIS-like savagery as justified revolutionary violence against apartheid Israel. Forced to take sides in these contesting sovereignties of identity politics, I say we are doomed to interminable lethal conflict, which can and must be managed, but not overcome. So we are very far from the beloved community of God. That's my first conclusion. Yeah, I mean, I, I've long observed that um, a lot of secular Westerners have values that they can't actually explain or defend and don't realize the the rock from which they were hewn, the, the deep legacy of the Jewish and Christian faith in the West. And, um, you know, worship God or worship death. It's going to be one or the other. Yeah, beginning with the high enlightenment in Kant, we've wanted Christian ethics without Christian dogma. And as a result, we're discovering that the Christian ethics, including the notion of humanity made in the image of God, and therefore uh, in duty bound to respect and honor, uh, is evaporating, uh, right from, it's disappearing right from under our feet. Right. Well, and uh, the ethics are not universally held because not right. everybody agrees with the, the, the quarry's assertion, the, the rock's exactly. assertion. Exactly. And that's why we're experiencing re-emergent fascism, both on the left and the right, in yeah. the post-Christendom spiritual vacuum, just as we also experience the internal decay of the democracies, which have forgotten that their fundamental belief that we are all endowed by our creator with inalienable rights to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. That is also decaying right before our eyes. Right. And that the purpose of democracy is to let genuinely different people coexist. There has to be some shared framework of coexistence. And then inside of that, there's lots of disagreements. But it seems that there is a both like a weird assertion everyone's the same, which is, I mean, believes and thinks the same, which is obviously not true. And then that's coupled with a desire to exterminate those who don't think like me or think that democracy is the way I get my people and my ideas to shut up your people and your ideas. And neither of those are reflective of the reality that democracy is a possibility that emerged out of hard-won Christian experience. Um, you know, that's it's just vanishing. Right. So, you know, this coming year, 2024, is going to be in the United States a big and I fear frightful political year with a presidential election. And on your comments, Sarah, we're kind of looking forward at the end of next year to have a podcast on democracy and Christians' relationship to democracy. But I would say for the time being, the Christian doctrine of the image of God requires us to resist re-emergent fascism wherever we see it cropping up its ugly head. And that fascism can be left or right uh, according to contemporary typologies of politics. Yeah, well, let's call it aspirational totalitarianism because that's right. more inclusive. Fascism al still always sounds necessarily right-wing to people. Even though that's another misunderstanding. Okay, so just to draw this to a conclusion, the disinflation of the Christian platonic theology of the divine image as founded on humanity's unique intellectual properties helps precisely in view of this decay of of human rights and democracy that we're experiencing. Human dignity 
and the right to belong to a just society which respects human dignity is not based on some calculus of your intelligence or wisdom. Habeas corpus, Latin, you have a human body, which connects you to the natural world and to the social world, and it is as such that you are connected to your Creator as His creature, who calls you to be truly human. And I call this in some of my work, I try to conceptualize this under the term of the common body. And into the midst of our ambiguous human experience, our fallenness, uh, the fallenness of the common body, uh, the church proclaims a particular somebody, Jesus Christ, as the true human being and image of God. Connected to him in the body of Christ, humans made in the image of God come together for likeness to God by having the same mind in them that was in Christ Jesus. And in this embodiment, we will reflect the light shining in our gathering darkness as the Advent season proclaims. So, folks, you are human, so go out there and be human. Amen. Happy New Year, everybody. Well, no, we're not signing off just yet. We have a few announcements before we close out this this final episode. Okay, so, um, yeah, this does feel a bit like going from the sublime to the ridiculous. But uh, if you're still here, there's a few things you might want to know about, listeners. The first is that uh, this year, Dad and I worked on upgrading and improving his website, paulhinlicky.com, which you always hear in the outro if you listen to the end. And so in addition to all of his books you can find there, um, we also have added a whole bunch of articles he has written over the years. So if you just go uh, navigate over to paulhinlicky.com and click on articles, you will find lots of good reading material for you there. Also, in the process of this upgrade, we discovered that um, we had incorrectly entered the email address um, for the contact form. So I'm (laughs) sad to say, if any of you have tried to contact Dad through this contact form on his website in the past, well, basically five years, um, the reason he didn't respond is because he never actually got the email. He was not ignoring you or dissing you. It just it just vanished because the wrong email address was in there. So we're very sorry about that. So if you've tried and you want to reach dad, go ahead and try again through the contact form on the website. And the last thing to say about that is, Dad, in Advent of 2023, you are starting a new project on your website. Why don't you say a couple words about that? Yeah, I've, I've enjoyed being a preacher for many years. And over the years, I've polished my sermons. They're usually sermons that are exegetically Uh, precise, uh, uh, researched, and I attempt to proclaim all three scripture lessons assigned in the Common Revised Lectionary. And of course, I do that with a Lutheran theological spin. So beginning the week in advance of the Sunday, I'm going to put on my website an exemplary sermon uh, on the text for the coming Sunday. So that would be at the end of November in anticipation of the first Sunday in Advent. Yeah, I think this follows in the great Lutheran tradition of the church postal that's spelled P-O-S-T-I-L. And yeah, it is a model sermons or basic sermons that preachers can read for inspiration and ideas and then adapt for their own local use. So if you have enjoyed hearing Dad exegete scripture over the years and would like some sermon helps, this would be a great place to go. And so you can just visit his website every week to see those.
Um, and then from me, a couple things. Uh, first, I have started a second podcast called Sarah Henlicky Wilson Stories. Um, it's a bit on the nose, I admit, but it improves for a search engine optimization. Um, and as you all know, I have a longstanding habit and interest in fiction and fiction in a theological key. And so I thought it would be helpful to have a second channel for those of you out there who might be interested in hearing stories with a theological bent, as well as some commentary and interpretation from me about where the stories come from, but also I have some reflections on other works of quote-unquote Christian fiction of a higher order, let's say. Uh, this is not Amish romance or the Left Behind series, um, but but worthier candidates for that. So the podcast is up. It's called Sarah Hinlicky Wilson Stories. There's at least 20 episodes up already, and I will be continuing onward. Um, and also, uh, during our break from regular programming, I will cross-post some of those episodes on this feed so you can uh, have a sample before you decide whether you want to subscribe. And secondly, I am going to be attempting my first Kickstarter in January of 2024. Um, this comes out of my experience of having to preach on the Transfiguration every year and running out of things to say. And at some point... Um, I thought there's got to be more about the transfiguration than I have figured out in my my preaching. And when I started digging into it, I became completely fascinated, not to say a little obsessed. And uh, Dad and I had already been talking about doing an episode on the transfiguration. And before long, I had discovered so much. I said, you know what? If I'm having trouble preaching on this every year, I bet other people are too. I'm going to write a book. So coming up in January will be a Kickstarter for a book called Seven Ways of Looking at the Transfiguration. It'll be great for preachers who have to preach on this on the last Sunday before Ash Wednesday every year. Um, it's also, for any Anglicans and Catholics out there listening, you might have to preach on it twice a year because you guys also keep the Feast of Transfiguration traditionally on August 6th, which is disconnected from the, the lectionary cycle as well. And those of you who are not preachers but are curious about this um, very unusual episode in the, the gospel history of Jesus, you will also find lots to benefit from there. So so anyway, we'll be saying more about that in January, but if you would like to be notified of the progress of the Kickstarter, you can go to, all right, I'm going to read off the website here. It's very long. I'll also have it in the show notes, which is easier, but it is. Ready? www.kickstarter.com forward slash projects forward slash Sarah Henlicky Wilson forward slash seven ways of looking at the transfiguration, but there is a hyphen between each of those words in the last section. I know you're never going to remember it just from hearing it. Check out the show notes. Okay, so that is all the new stuff from us. We will be taking our usual break in December and early January, but we will have plenty of bonus episodes to keep you well supplied with Queen of the Sciences content. Uh, so look for us back in January 2024 for the sixth season of Queen of the Sciences. And in the meanwhile, Merry Christmas. Yes, blessed Advent, Merry Christmas, and a joyful New Year to one and all. listening to the Queen of the Sciences podcast. For show notes and more, visit our website, queenofthesciences.com. To find out more about what we do, visit sarahhenlickywilson.com and paulhenlicky.com. Finally, please leave us a review on iTunes and tell a friend about the show.